Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, we'll get reaction to the new national dental care program and a plan for clean drinking water for First Nations communities. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. We'll get to those stories in a moment, but first, a longtime member of the House of Commons is stepping down. Liberal Carolyn Bennett addressed MPs for the last time this afternoon, retiring as the MP for the riding of Toronto-St. Paul, a community she has represented since first being elected back in 1997. Bennett served in government and in opposition, holding several cabinet portfolios along the way, including Minister of State for Public Health, Minister of Indigenous and Northern Affairs, and Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. With that, let's take a listen to a bit of Carolyn Bennett during her final speech to the Commons today. Over the past few months, as I've been sorting through some boxes, many boxes, boxes from the early years in this House, as chair of the subcommittee on persons with disabilities, chair of Canada Israel Parliamentary Friendship Group, chair of Women's Caucus, twice, um, Minister of State for Public Health, and in opposition, my various critic roles. From 2011 to 2015 was a life-changing experience, as Bob Ray appointed me the critic for Indigenous Affairs. Boxes from my cabinet roles in this government. I found that the biggest box by far dealt with the ongoing theme of democratic reform. Democratic reform to me has always included four things. Parliamentary reform, party reform, electoral reform, and meaningful citizen engagement. This last I call democracy between elections. It became my brand. I actually found another box at the cottage, research and outline for a book I'd begun 10 years ago, <laughs> Democracy Between Elections, a politician's guide to listening and a citizen's guide to being heard. I may have to get back to that. <laughs> the Trudeau government's dental care program is one step closer to becoming a reality. Between now and 2025, Canadians who qualify will be allowed to enroll and when all is said and done, well, the health minister believes some 9 million Canadians will start getting the oral health care that's just been too expensive to afford. We're going after those folks who don't have coverage today. So we know that there's about a quarter of Canadians um, who don't have said that uh, financial barriers means they're not getting access to oral health. So what we want to do is not displace what's there, but rather go after those folks who don't have service so that everybody has access to a healthy, happy smile. And as I say, that that is not only going to be so important for how they inhabit the world and go into their work and spend time with their families and friends, but it's going to be so essential as well from a perspective of prevention. Of course, dental care was just one priority that New Democrats put on the table in return for supporting the minority Liberals. And to talk about dental care, we're now joined by the NDP's health critic, Vancouver Kingsway MP Don Davies. Mr. Davies, good to see you again. Great to see you, Michael. Now, listen, uh, long before your party signed the Supply and Confidence Agreement, New Democrats did introduce uh, a private member's bill for a national dental care program. Why was it so important? Why is it important for your party? You know, I can, I can really trace that back to the 1960s, Michael, when we were creating our Medicare system, dental care was supposed to be part 
of our public health care system. Uh, but it wasn't at that time because we didn't have enough dentists and Tommy Douglas in the 1960s uh, said that our dream was head-to-toe health care. Uh, so all aspects of it delivered through our public health care system. So it's long been part of the NDP DNA and and the NDP, we were alone pushing this issue on the national agenda. We introduced motions in previous parliaments to have universal dental care available to everybody. And frankly, the Liberals and Conservatives both voted against it. So that's, uh, that's why uh, it was important to us in the confidence and supply agreement to make progress on this. And, um, you know, 32%, that's one in three Canadians, about 13 million Canadians, don't have dental insurance. And to us, dental care is primary health care. It's not a luxury. It's not a cosmetics issue, it's a matter of fundamental health and if you don't take care of your, your mouth, it leads to serious health problems. So we're really excited that we uh, forced the government to act on this issue. Okay, so now here we have it, enrollment uh, essentially begins now up until 2025. Is this the program that New Democrats had envisioned? Uh, yes and no. Um, I'm very happy with the design of this program. It's a comprehensive basket of services, just like a normative dental plan. Everything from x-rays and fillings and bridges and dentures, uh, you know, tooth extractions, uh, gum surgery. Everything's going to be included just like anything else. So I'm happy with that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm fairly happy with the, uh, the fee schedule because making sure that the dental professionals are, uh, are happy about this is key to the success. Um, I guess where I'm, I'm left uh, a little bit uh, yearning is it's our dream to make sure that everybody has coverage through our public health care system. So to us, this is a down payment on that, a very important one. Um, but, you know, this is going to change a lot of people's lives, Michael. I mean, you know, seniors who can't bite into an apple, single moms who can't get their kids to the dentist, this is going to be a life changer for them and, and also in a time of great affordability issues it'll take some much needed expenses off people's uh, pocketbooks at a really important time when people are struggling. Okay, so so I, I hear what you're saying about you, you see this as a down payment for, for more down the road but I, I, I do wonder, are you at all concerned that this new national program will encourage provinces to cut back on their own programs or companies to cut the dental insurance available for employees right now? Well, fundamentally, no. I mean, that's a legitimate concern, um, but I don't think so for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, provinces and territories are going to sit back and watch while the federal government pays 100% of the cost of covering their residents, their citizens, to get dental care they don't get now. That'll keep those people out of emergency rooms, out of hospitals, because that's where they end up when they don't get access to, to dental care, saving provinces and territories money. So I think it's a win-win for the provinces and the federal government and territories. In terms of businesses, you know, the, the, the most employers provide a basket of services in an extended health plan. They include physiotherapy, pharmaceuticals, massage and, and dental care, including cosmetic services. So I think extracting just that one piece of, of dental care out of those plans will be difficult and not very attractive for a lot of employers and of course, uh, one thing I don't like about this plan, but uh, is a realistic uh, aspect keeping businesses in, is the means test, right? This is only for families with income under $90,000. A lot of employers cover their employees who make more than that, so it's not feasible for them to drop their plans um, and have their employees covered by this one. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, before you go, uh, of course, I'm going to ask you about pharmacare, uh, because the, the week did start out uh, with me reading an article saying that you were still holding out hope that maybe something might be introduced before the end of this week. Uh, do you still have that hope? Well, it's looking dimmer all the time. Um, I did at the beginning of the week think that it's possible. We're in 
very, very intense and close discussions with our Liberal colleagues and we're exploring some really interesting ideas to advance the idea of, of public uh, single-payer pharmacare. So um, I'm going to work as hard as I can to the end of the deadline and uh, hopefully that we can get something done, but, but if not I'm going to keep at it because that's also another extremely important healthcare need for Canadians. Mm -hmm. You know, what's interesting is, and you and I were talking about this during the, your party's convention in Hamilton, just how important it is for you and for New Democrats that Pharmacare is, essentially is, is a public system, but here you have dental care relying on an, an insurance company. Is that, type of, is that a type of compromise that we might still see in Pharmacare? Is that still a, whole, a sticking point here? No, you won't see that in Pharmacare. I mean, too much work has been done, Michael, and research and, and studies on Pharmacare because we know that the only way you get the efficiencies, uh, the, the effectiveness and the fairness of, of pharmaceutical coverage is if you fold it into our public system. We have decades of, of research uh, showing that. The thing about dental care is we don't have that work being done. So that's why the NDP said, look, um, we don't mind making a down payment on universal, universality for dental care and get 9 million Canadians covered now and we'll continue our work on that. But for Pharmacare, you know, after the Hoskins Advisory Committee report and the report we did at the Health Committee, there's just simply no doubt that that's the only way forward is to fold pharmaceuticals into our single-payer system. So that's a, a non-negotiable for us. Is that still a major sticking point though? Uh, well, we're, our position couldn't be clearer and uh, you'd have to ask Liberals what their position is. Uh, you know, it was Prime Minister Trudeau, after the Health Committee issued our single-payer report, which was by a majority Liberal committee, by the way, his answer was to uh, kick that off to the Hoskins Committee. He created it and asked for Hoskins' advice. The advice came back, do single-payer. So, you know, it's a no-brainer to me. It's the only way you save money and cover everybody. So um, we're going to keep uh, telling Liberals that and hope we can get a piece of legislation that reflects that and makes progress. Don Davies, always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thanks for yours, Michael. Well, let's continue the conversation now with the Canadian Dental Association. Joining us now is Dr. Heather Carr, the CDA president. Hello, Dr. Carr. Hi, I'm happy to join you this afternoon. Well, really great to have you on because I do want to get some reaction here to this program. What are you hearing from your members? Are they happy with this development, perhaps concerned? I think that um, I, I represent the national voice of uh, dentistry and the CDA has been advocating for care for these populations uh, for many, many years. So anything that's going to help persons with disabilities, our seniors over 65 and um, the, the uh, low income individuals get care is a positive. The members are uh, more the purview of the provincial dental associations and territorial dental associations. But I can tell you that my colleagues are um, I guess cautiously optimistic. There's still a lot of details that need to be um, rolled out. And I think that once we have all the details, that's when uh, we'll hear a better sense of what the dentists feel. So more details, uh, which I, I don't think you're alone in that, but what specifically are, are you looking for here? What questions still need answers for you? Well, I think that the Canadian Dental Association did a policy paper back in February 2023 and we and we asked for certain um, criteria to be met in this plan. So we wanted to be patient centered, you know, a holistic plan, um, allow individuals to um, stay with their own dentist of choice, uh, be be carried out through existing offices, which it does appear that you'll be able to go to a dental office, but it also has to be prevention based because we all know in dentistry you want to 
you know, catch things early and you want to prevent disease rather than wait until someone's in pain. And the other concern that the, the, the Dental Association has proposed, the Canadian Dental Association, and I would say this would be supported by the provincial and territorial dental associations, is that you want something that's got a reasonable amount of administration. You know, it's uh, if there's just too much red tape, too much administration, that is going to impact um, the uptake and, of course, to cover the full cost of the treatment for the patients. Mm -hmm. Cover the full cost, as you say. In terms of uh, the number of dentists who might step forward to be a part of this program, do you think that'll be a challenge at all? I, I, once again, once we know exactly what they're stepping forward for, then I think you're going to have a better sense. You know, I've, I've been a general dentist practicing for 35 years, and my patients include a lot of the individuals who could be helped by this plan. And we're, we're professionals and we're caring and we do step up for patients, but we just need to get enough information to be able to make that final decision. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like right now it will be going through through an insurance provider. Does that, uh, which seems to, to lean on what many are used to right now with going to the dentist. Does that give you some comfort? I think it's certainly um, what we're used to, you know, dealing with insurance companies. However, it's going to depend on the conditions that the federal government um, places on the program, because ultimately, you know, the Canadian Dental Association has been at the table providing advice and recommendation, and our provincial and territorial associations providing some technical briefings, but ultimately it is the federal government's plan. And hopefully over the next few months and having discussions with the dentists, with the provincial and territorial associations, we can iron out some of the details to make sure that the patients who need care receive it. Mm-hmm. And to that, you know, I was actually looking at your recommendations a little bit earlier today. Uh, there, there seems to be an emphasis, among other things, uh, on training to make sure that there are enough uh, dentists and uh, oral care uh, health care workers in the system. Is there a danger of overwhelming the system? Is that what you're getting at here? I don't know about overwhelming the system, um, but what we're what we're finding is that like most areas of the health sector, we are short-staffed. There's a shortage of skilled labor. So we certainly have been talking to the government about ways to improve its uh, dental hygienists and assistants and even front desk. So I don't know about overwhelm, but we certainly, if something came out that was very administration heavy, it's going to tax uh, our front desk staff, for example, who are already working at their maximum potential. Mm-hmm. Now, you also talk about, in, in your recommendations, making sure that public dental care programs uh, remain a payer of last resort. Uh, what's your concern there? Well, we we have two concerns, I guess. We're afraid of displacement of insurance. So if the first one, I guess I would say, would be employer-sponsored plans. You know, in Canada, we do have a third of the Canadians that don't have that access to care, which is why the dental associations have been so keen to see this program come in and work. But having said that, we do have 65% or two-thirds of Canadians who have had excellent care. And the reason they've had excellent care is because they had access to employer-sponsored plans or they're able to fund themselves. And the other concern would be, and so if the provincial plans, I know the federal government is still negotiating with them because in some cases the provinces have very lean plans, in other cases they're excellent. But our concern would be if, for example, if employers who are facing a lot of economic challenges decide that, well, my employees don't need dental benefits anymore. There's two concerns, really, I guess. One is that maybe the 
federal plan is not going to be as good as what they receive from their employer. And secondly, if those individuals are displaced onto the federal program, will it be sustainable? They could go from, say, 9 million Canadians to 17 million. So the bill would be a lot higher for them if they're not looking at ways to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. So so as you said right off top, a number of questions that still need answers, <laughs> a number of concerns as we watch this progress. So, you know, the plan here is to enroll people gradually, as you know, and the bulk of eligible Canadians should be enrolled by the start of 2025. So so I'm kind of wondering from from uh, perhaps as the CDA role, but also you as a, as a frontline worker, how will you know this program is a success or a failure? Well, I, I think it's going to be a success or failure if the patients get the care they need. So in other words, if we can get the patients in and if the, and if the dentists enroll as providers for the plan, that if, if, they've got, if the government has provided this plan and we get those discussions done and the details ironed out, then, then we'll have a success. If we get a good uptake by the dentists and by the patients, I think then the government considers this is a monumental investment. I mean, it, it's something that we never imagined would happen in my career, but it has to be done right. And, and the federal government has an obligation to deal with both the patient end of it and the dentists to make sure that it's a fair program for everyone. Dr. Heather Carr, really appreciate the time this evening. Thank you for that. I'm happy to. And if there's any other questions, please feel free to reach out. Time now for a look at the other stories making headlines today. Canada is calling for efforts towards a, quote, sustainable ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. The government issued the statement earlier today with Australia and New Zealand. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he outlined Canada's position to the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We are committed to working uh, with partners in the region and around the world towards an enduring two-state solution. Canada is committed to ensuring that Israelis and Palestinians get to live in peace and security within internationally recognized borders uh, in peaceful and successful uh, states. Meanwhile, the UN General Assembly voted to demand a ceasefire, which Canada supported. It comes after the United States vetoed a similar resolution last week at the UN Security Council. Now, while Security Council resolutions are legally binding, the General Assemblies are not. The NDP wants House of Commons Speaker Greg Fergus to be disciplined, punished for recording a video tribute in his Speaker's robes in the House to the former interim Ontario Liberal leader John Fraser. Now, the party is not calling for him to resign, but says it will table a non-confidence motion if it happens again. So what we're saying to the Speaker by taking these tough disciplinary measures is this is not to happen again. And if it does happen, we have the ability to to table and to move on a substantive motion and we certainly and we certainly will be doing that if if this ever happens again Julian adds he wants to see clear rules on partisan activity in the speaker's briefing packages a house committee studying the issue is expected to report back by Thursday the conservatives and the bloc quebecois for the record have called for fergus to resign And finally tonight, Ottawa is launching consultations for a standardized housing design catalogue with the goal of speeding up the construction and delivery of homes. Housing Minister Sean Fraser says it's an idea hearkening back to Canada's past. 
We are living in a housing crisis, but it's not the first time Canada's been here. Uh, after the Second World War, when many thousands of soldiers were returning home to be reunited with their families at once, uh, Canada faced enormous housing crunches. Uh, one of the tools that was deployed at the time to respond uh, to the challenges they faced at, at that particular point in time was the development of simple pre-approved designs. Consultations are expected to start next month and Fraser says he hopes to have the catalogue ready for builders by next fall. The Trudeau government touts it as a framework to ensure clean drinking water for First Nations communities. Known as Bill C-61, the act not only aims to set out new water standards, it also wants to create a First Nations Water Commission, a body that would ensure an Indigenous voice is always at the table when it comes to water stewardship. The AFN has worked diligently to ensure that legislation contains the necessary minimum requirements as articulated by First Nations. This involved expanding the bill's mandate to remove the restrictions and incorporate necessary financial governance and rights-based language reflecting the needs and perspectives put forward by First Nations across Canada. The development of this legislation is critical to the quality of life and self-determination of First Nations. Joining us now is Jenica Atwin, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Indigenous Services. Ms. Atwin, thank you for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Now, if this bill is passed, a Bill C-61, it would change how water in First Nations communities would be managed. It would change how it's protected. You know, could you walk us through how you see those changes working out when you compare it to what exists right now? Uh, well, I mean, really, this is a historic, I think, first step to ensuring that First Nation communities have adequate, safe drinking water for generations to come. And it really puts them in the driver's seat, which is the most important piece of all this. Um, and through extensive consultations, it's really about creating the table so that all levels of government can come together and ensure that this is not a crisis that we continue to see in this country. So it's a great day. Um, it, again, it offers those tools to the Indigenous leadership and communities themselves. It holds the government accountable as well and our responsibility here and what we need to continue to do to be good partners. Um, and again, it just affirms the inherent right to access to clean drinking water in Canada. Okay, let's break that up a little bit. And begin with this clean drinking water. Of course, your government committed to, to, to ending boil water advisories across the country. The work is still being done. Uh, but how does this ensure clean water for generations to come, as you put it? I think for me, the, 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 one of the most important pieces is actually the, the fact that it's got adequate funding built in. Um, and so that piece has always been a, a bit of a, of a hurdle, uh, in all honesty, in ensuring that communities have the resources that they need. Um, so this is going to go towards you know, funding wastewater infrastructure projects, which we've seen across the country. Of course, we still have a few long-term boil water advisories that need to be addressed. So it's allowing, again, the tools uh, for communities to have them front and center and to have those supports and partnerships and to bring provinces and territories into that conversation. Because oftentimes, it's that convening piece that's been missing. Um, so this really puts Indigenous communities and leadership in the driver's seat um, and to ensure that, again, that fiduciary responsibility, um, you know, that accountability is there for the government to, to really work with them. Okay, accountability. What happens if a First Nations in this process feels that the, the obligations out, as outlined in this bill are not being met by the government? 
Well, so there's there's mechanisms within the framework that's outlined in the bill um, that that provides for the, that accountability, where you know the federal government will have to be we will have to be there, we'll have to answer to that. And really, what I think I see is that the main piece about this legislation is that it shows that good faith. It shows that we are willing to be there. Um, so I hope it's going to prevent what we've seen in in the past, which has been decades of of, of you know really lapsing our responsibility to look after First Nations uh, drinking water and clean and safe access, especially again including you know waters that are adjacent. So what, you know it actually goes into the source water as well, which is a really big piece that wasn't actually included before. So um, I think considering all of that, again, it pulls all of those partners together to that same table. And that's really what the big difference is here. Okay. Now, part of what you touched on is this idea of, of First Nations having this self-determination, the self-government when it comes to water. How do you ensure this survives beyond your government, though? And I know that's the intent here, but how do you ensure that this is actually in per perpetuity and not for, for just the term of, of your, your government sitting in power? Well, I think again, that's what's what's so historic about this legislation is it puts in this this in place for for generations to come. There's, there's not going to be this easily to be able to pull back from this kind of agreement. Um, and and again, it shows the good faith for our part partners, provinces, and territories. Um, so this is not something that's going to be e easily wiped away. This is this is to ensure you know for for future generations that this is something that will in perpetuity be protected. Again, that inherent right to to access to clean water. Um, so it's not something that can be taken away. So we needed this legislation. We needed those those legislative tools to enshrine this into law. Um, so now that First Nations have that assurance. Okay. Now, can you talk to us a bit more about the consultation? Though You say it was widely uh, consulted in arriving to this process, but, you know, there, there has been some criticism. Some First Nations leaders saying that they, they actually didn't know about this until it was actually announced by your government. So, you know, consultations have been open since 2018. Uh, there's been an, an online engagement process. Draft legislation was actually shared with First Nations communities across the country on more than one occasion. Um, there was a consultation uh, co committee that was, was put together as well. And so these are all important pieces. Um, I think that it's important to know that there's still opportunity for consultation. So we have the parliamentary process. We'll have debate. We'll have committee. We want to hear every voice throughout the country on this because it is so important. Um, we know that some are very happy with what we're seeing through this legislation, some not so happy. And that's it's okay. We're working towards this, you know, together. And I think that really is in the spirit of a partnership and reconciliation. Um, and, and consultation has to be the key. I think there's lots of lessons that can be learned from this for other departments and government as well. Um, so it's really, for me, it, it's, it's showing that that process is ongoing. Um, but it really is historic consultations when it comes to this legislation. Mm -hmm. Are you surprised then by, by some First Nations leaders who say that they were never consulted? I am a bit surprised, um, and I look forward to having those conversations with them. Um, this is a new role for me, and so I'm really eager to, to build those important relationships. And so, you know, happy to hear them out, because, again, every voice is going to be important to be heard on this. Mm -hmm. Now, are you worried, though, that this kind of early criticism, uh, skepticism, might actually uh, harm the process in trying to get this bill passed? I really don't. Um, I think it's going to add again to that debate process that we'll be going through. We'll be hearing from partners across the country. Um, you'll be hearing about those who are again very much in favor to explain why and how it actually supports their, their goals of self-determination moving forward. Um, so I hope that through those discussions we'll all come together in consensus and realize just how important this really is for Canada. Okay. Jenica, when I really appreciate the time today. Thank you for that. Thanks so much for having me. And that is our program for this Tuesday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow. And coming up is Esther Bégin avec L'Essentiel. But as we leave right now, we do want to play a bit more of Carolyn Bennett as she announced her retirement today and shared a part of this speech to the House of Commons. 
For 26 years, I've been able to honestly reply to the critics with a question. What country would you rather live in? For 26 years, the answer has been the same. A moment of silence, and then an acknowledgement that as much work as there still is to do, we are proud Canadians. I've never heard one word of other country envy. So I will miss my amazing parliamentary colleagues. I think we remember that moment in the House this fall when President Zelensky from Ukraine quoted Governor General Mary Simon with a word in a nukta Don't give up. Stay strong against all odds. In these difficult times, I have every confidence that we will continue to fight together to make the best country in the world even better. Merci, miigwech, thank you, ajiwinata. Bravo. Bravo. Bravo.